0: guide us lord by your word and by your spirit that in your light we may see clearly that in your truth we may find wisdom and that in your will we may discover true peace through jesus christ the messiah promised sent and coming again amen well two weeks ago we talked about the fulfillment of prophecy jesus was born in bethlehem His family fled to Egypt, and they returned to Nazareth. And Joseph's commitment to his wife and a government census and a warning in a dream and a jealous ruler shifted Jesus and his early life around that map. So he was born in Bethlehem. He did come out of Egypt, and he was called a Nazarene. All of those things became true. And today we're going to go back to that middle segment, where Joseph and Mary and Jesus are fleeing from Egypt. And the character we are going to focus on today is Herod. Now, when you think about the Christmas story, Herod is not a beloved Christmas character. He's the villain in the story. And he launches an attack against the newborn king because he's jealous, and he has a history of violence, and he is power-hungry. So the nativity and the angels and the shepherds are all Christmas card-worthy characters. Herod, not one of those characters. And we read today of Herod in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 18, titled, The Magi Visit the Messiah. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. So who was Herod? First of all, Herod was a title, not an individual person's name and the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire and continued to grow in size and continued to grow in power. So the Mediterranean Sea that we see here was surrounded by the Roman Empire. And in that expansion of territory, there was a need for rulers to rule individual segments of that kingdom. So Caesar Augustus gives the task of governing the Jewish people in the area of modern-day Israel, which is at the southeast corner there of the Mediterranean Sea, to Herod. And if we zoom in on that segment, we see a similar map to some that we saw two weeks ago this typical Galilee, Samaria, Judah, or Judea area that we see in many of our biblical maps. This is part of Herod's territory. And his family is going to hold a role in that through a number of generations. Herod will have grandsons and great-grandsons, some of you see here listed in the key to the side, that will also rule over that territory with that same title, Herod and then an additional name attached to that. So you may recognize that name Herod from other parts of the biblical story and the New Testament story. Jesus, when he was sent before Pilate, then gets shipped off to Herod Antipas, and then back to Pilate. Or to Pilate. So Pilate ruled this lower section here, the governor of Judea, and then the Herods had a, a larger scope to their governance and the place that they had power over to. Again, many different Herods, same family, different people holding that similar role. So our Herod in Matthew 2 is Herod the Great. And if we think about it very loosely at this time, he is kind of the king of the Jews. And then the Magi come to him asking about this new king of the Jews. Now Herod was a great builder, And that is why he was given the name Herod the Great. And he was very desperate to find favor with these Jewish people because he was not one of them. They did not respect him. They did not respect his authority. So one of the things that he did was rebuild their temple. And as a non-Jewish person, this is somewhere that he would never be able to go into. But again, he's trying to get on their good side. He's doing something for them and trying to win them over. He also built this fantastic port city on the Mediterranean Sea, Caesarea, which you may recognize from biblical stories, named after Caesar Augustus, who we already heard. He's always trying to impress. He's always trying to broaden his scope and increase his power. One of the other things that he built was this fortress on top of this great cliff. And think about that. From a military standpoint that's a good place to preserve your position and to preserve your power and that is what herod was all about he's all about gaining and holding on to power so he recognizes his disadvantage as a non-jewish man he was from arab descent who's governing over these jewish people and he goes so far as to seek out a Jewish princess so he could marry into that family and into that culture and maybe legitimize a little bit more who he is as a ruler over them. By the way, he's already married at that point and has a six-year-old son, so he just kind of pushes them out of town so he can marry this princess. And again, he didn't marry this woman and he didn't rebuild this temple because he loved the Jewish people. Herod loved the power. So we read in our text for today that he bring, uh, brings in the priests and he brings in the teachers of these Jewish people to ask them about the Messiah. Because when the Magi come to him, he needs to consult with one of their own, one of the Jewish people's own, because these prophecies are not something that he is familiar with. Two weeks ago when we talked about Joseph, we talked about the fact that he would have been familiar with these messianic prophecies because he was a Jew. When you think about the disciples that followed Jesus, they were Jewish as well. We sometimes think of them just as lowly fishermen, but they were trained and educated in all of these Jewish scriptures. They would have known the messianic prophecies too. That is part of their culture. That is part of their story. They understand these things. And Herod, despite his position... And despite all of the power that he has, needs to ask someone from the inside of that community that he's ruling over because that is not a piece of his culture. Now there's one interesting phrase in those early verses when he's bringing these teachers and these priests in. It says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. So you would think that the people are waiting for this Messiah with anticipation. The suggestion that I read is perhaps it was these religious rulers that we often talk about, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that honestly sometimes are more interested in their position and in their power than serving their God in a godly way. So perhaps this disturbance, all of Israel, or of Jerusalem being disturbed with him, would be because they have recognized that the Messiah has come to set things straight, and they're maybe not sitting quite on the right side of that. So what prompts this panic that we read about from Herod and his interest in the Messiah? It was the Magi telling him that the king of the Jews had arrived and there's a suggestion that there is one newly born from that culture and from the line of David that has a more legitimate claim to the power that he has than he does. His hold is already weak and now he feels very threatened. And I wanna back up to two weeks ago. I know many of you heard the the presentation that Dr. Bushhouse gave after our service. Uh, I am not an astronomer. I do have a telescope at the house uh, but he went much deeper into many of those things that I could but I do want to recap a few of those highlights about the star um, so we have a little bit of context of where the Magi are, are coming in from. So he told us they were astronomers and astrologers and mathematicians and they would be looking at the sky and they would be tracking all of these things that were happening. Regular occurrences, regular and predictable patterns of things that were happening. We see, as he pointed out in in our Christmas cards and and pictures of this time, this giant bright star in the sky, and it probably was not that. It was probably not an unusual uh, or particularly uh, cosmic thing that immediately drew their attention. It was something in the patterns of the stars and the planets that was happening that they took note of. And as he mentioned to us, there was a connection between the constellation of Aries, which you see in the top right-hand corner, and Judea, which we saw at the bottom of the map, right? Judea is where Herod is. Uh, That is where Jerusalem is. So that tells them, because of the connection between Aries, the ram, which was featured on some of their currency, and this constellation in Judea, the way that all those things match up, that something is happening in Judea what happened was the sun rises through that constellation and the five visible planets that you can see with the naked eye rise through that constellation as well so that's what draws them to judea and if something has happened and they assume this has to be big this has to be some sort of royal birth they're naturally going to go to judea and they're going to go to jerusalem the capital city and they're going to go see the guy who's in charge and go, "Who's the new king of the Jews? Who's the baby that has been born?" And frightening to Herod, because that's the position he has. That's the power that he wants right now. Dr. Bushhouse told us how extremely rare this occurrence was. It would happen once every 300,000 years. So normal things that are happening, but a particularly interesting and very rare alignment of these stars and planets. He also gave us a a little bit of a, a background on the movement of the star and the way some of those things perhaps get lost in the translation of our Bible. When it says that the star went ahead of them, it means that the planets were moving in the same direction as the stars which is unusual. Usually they move in opposite directions uh, across our sky. And when it says that it stopped, it means it hit that point in its orbit where it starts to go back in the proper direction across our skies. So it looks for a moment as if it has paused in a particular space. So we can go back, we can look at the normal and natural and predictable patterns of our stars and our planets And we can compute and calculate those things and go all the way back to that time and know what was happening in their sky in that location at that time. And like the movements of Joseph that we talked about two weeks ago, and like government things and and, and people just doing what seem like normal, natural things, God uses this, the predictable patterns of the skies, for the extraordinary purposes of having these magi recognize something is happening. Something big is happening. And the magi are excited and Herod is worried because he doesn't know where that threat is coming from. He doesn't know who this particular newborn king of the Jews is. Who is the boy that will take his throne? So he goes after all The young boys in Bethlehem. And that is when the angel appears to Joseph and says, It's time to move again. It's time to run. When we look at the time and the location of this incident of Herod going after these young boys, now it has become known as the Massacre of the Innocents. And that might suggest to us, because of that title or our imaginations, that it was much bigger than it was, sometimes projected as thousands. The size of the town, the time of the area suggests it was much smaller than that, maybe 40, but still shows you just how sick and desperate Herod is to hold on to his power. And these baby boys were not the first and not the only victims of Herod and his jealousy and his violence. We already heard that he exiled his wife and his young son when he was looking for power. As his other sons got older and he thought maybe they were eyeing his position, he would get rid of them too and not in the sense that he would just send them on their way out of town. It was said that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's palace than one of his own children because anyone who was a threat or anyone that was a potential threat or an imagined threat would be someone that Herod would eliminate. They had gotten in his way. So if we back up just a little bit to Herod's rise to power, we find out that he was groomed for that, and he was playing this political game. And he was playing this game with known historical figures. Herod is a known historical and political figure himself. And there are times when someone may speak to our Bible or speak to the Christian story and say, that's just a a made-up fairy tale and a bunch of pretend characters. And Jesus, they might say, never existed. And that's simply not true. We find evidence of Jesus in non-biblical sources. And that is the same, of course, with Herod. There's documentation. Herod, who we see depicted here on the bottom, was ruling at a time and and rising at a time when Queen Cleopatra was on the scene, Mark Antony, and one we already heard of, Caesar Augustus. And some were friends and some were enemies But as I I read recently and in recent years about the history of Jesus and the time of his birth and all the things that were going on, these were characters that were a part of that story. And that was a moment for me at least when real life history and biblical history started to collide and, and run alongside each other. We have historical context of events and rulers outside of the Bible. Some of them mentioned in our Bible that are happening at the same time. So these are the people that Herod was playing the political game with. These are the people that he's increasing his power with and increasing his reach. And he's eliminating threats and he's keeping a wary eye on members of his own family And he's playing the game for the power and the throne and the crown. And it sounds like something you might watch in a movie or a television show about that same type of thing. All of the political maneuvering, all the working for that power. And Herod is cold-blooded. And he is a tyrant. And he is a bully. And he is rising up that ladder. And as he rises up that ladder, he is not about to give that up. And he would never earn the respect of the Jewish people, and in his final days, as he is on his deathbed, he orders one more mass execution. He tells his people to go eliminate a big group of the Jewish people so the history books would show that on the day Herod died, the Jews mourned. So why are we talking about this guy in the middle of the Advent season? Why bring him into the Christmas story? Why don't we just stick with angels and shepherds and and cute little baby boys that would one day save the world? Because like Herod, some of us feel threatened by what Jesus' arrival means. More and more, our world does not embrace him. They don't celebrate his coming at Christmas, they don't see his position as our rightful king, and Christmas is offensive to them with Jesus in it because they think they should be able to run their own lives and be the kings and queens of their own little kingdoms. Or Christmas gets twisted in something that celebrates everything but what it is all about. And even though we might focus on good feelings and good actions, it's incomplete if the Messiah is not in the middle of all of that. And that's not just in the Christmas season, that's in the normal course of our life. Light comes into the darkness, and that gives hope to those of us who follow that light. But for those who don't, it exposes the darkness of their lives and that is not a comfortable thing. And many of us, maybe most of us know very well the words of John 3:16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And what comes after John 3:16? Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So looking at your life in the light, again, can be very uncomfortable. What the light exposes requires us To make changes that we would set aside our kingdom for the kingdom of God and we can say that we're all about the true meaning of Christmas and that certainly we're not on the level of Herod but what are the things that we are holding on to tighter than clinging to God and his kingdom and his promises what are the things that we celebrate more in our lives then we celebrate Jesus. What are the things that we chase? What are the things that we elevate instead of kneeling to the king and submitting to his kingdom? Instead of seeking him so we can worship him, like the Magi did, we fight to preserve our own will and our own way and our own control and our own power. And it's not his kingdom come, but my will be done because as we think about joy this morning, there's great joy in trusting in God and His power and His kingdom and freedom if we truly celebrate Him and align ourselves with who He is and what that means. If we answer the call to be disciples, to make disciples, if we align ourselves with Him and with His kingdom, And we resist that self-centered nature that is just part of being a human, seeking the things that are better for us, that make us more comfortable. Our goals, our position, our busyness, our dreams. So on the third Sunday of Advent, as we consider joy and the joy that can be found in him, do we find our joy in the same places that the world finds its joy? And ultimately, it's unfulfillment. Do we chase and value the same things that they chase and that they value? Who or what is our king? Last Sunday with the the kids, I, I talked about comfort and being comfortable. And we continued that conversation with the middle schoolers after the service. We talked about Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one. What is our only comfort? And it's that we belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our King, we are His. And we can take joy from that knowledge that the Messiah has come and He has freed us from the penalty of our sins. We also need to align with what He has asked us to do. That that answer to that catechism question says He watches over us. That He works in us and around us For our salvation it says that we are assured of eternal life and that is comforting the hope the peace the joy the love of the knowledge that we belong to him and then we respond the joy that we share as a community is the opportunity that we have to serve that King that we would be wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. And that's how we thank God for the gift of his son. We're not threatened by the new king. We're not threatened by the new kingdom. His arrival sets us free so that we can glorify him and we can enjoy him forever. Pray with me. Lord, in a season of giving, May we recognize the gift that we have been given and its value over anything else we could ever try to earn for ourselves. In a season of receiving, may we receive all you have promised us with hope and with open hearts, embracing who we are as citizens of your kingdom. In a season of hope, may we find our hope in you. In a season of peace, may we not seek temporary comfort, but eternal comfort in belonging body and soul in this life and the next to you and only you in a season of joy may our joy be in following and serving you in being loved by you may we reflect that in every season thank you jesus our king for bringing your kingdom and inviting us in amen